In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. This is a special day. It's the Feast of Pentecost. I understand that there was a major highway that was closed this morning and people are still making their way to church. Uh, When we started, it was um, a lot less people, but more and more are coming in. So I guess they're finding their way around the different freeways to be here, but I'm glad they're coming. I'd like for us to spend some time on our first reading from Acts chapter 2. The word Pentecost can be confusing to some people, some connect it to Pentecostalism. And that probably signifies a somewhat wild form of, of Christian religious experience and practice outside the main line uh, uh, church life, involving a lot of noise, waving of arms, and speaking of tongues. Um, though having said that, Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement are growing throughout many parts of the world, particularly in the global south. We often forget that all Christians, not only those who call themselves Pentecostals, derive their meaning from the first Pentecost. We often forget, too, perhaps equally important, just what Pentecost itself originally was and what it meant. And as you might guess, we're going to talk about that today. And in the true biblical sense of the word, if we are a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, and that is why we celebrate. For a first century Jew, Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. It was an agricultural um, festival. It was the day when farmers brought the first sheep of of the wheat from the crop and offered it to God, partly as a sign of thanksgiving and partly as a sign that all the rest of the crop, too, would be safely gathered in. But for the Jews, neither Passover nor Pentecost were simply agricultural festivals. These festivals awakened echoes of the great story that dominated the long memories of the Jewish people. The story of the exodus from Egypt when God fulfilled his promises to Abraham by rescuing his people. Passover was the time when the lambs were sacrificed and the Israelites were saved from the angel who slew the firstborn of the Egyptians. Off went uh, the Israelites that very night and passed through the Red Sea into Sinai where Moses received the law. So Pentecost, the 50th day, isn't just about the first fruits of the crop, the sheep which says harvest has begun. And this is important for us to grasp. It is about God giving to his redeemed people the way of life by which they must now carry out his purposes. All of that and more keeps peeping out from behind what the New Testament says about the Holy Spirit and about Pentecost in particular. So this is a story about the disciples being filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, and then going out to bear witness to Jesus and his resurrection and to see people become new followers of Jesus Christ who will make disciples, who will in turn make disciples. And when when we look closely at the way some Jews told the story of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, we can see some parallels there as well. So when the Israelites arrived out at Mount Sinai, Moses went up the mountain and then came down the mountain again with the law. 
So here Jesus has gone up into heaven in the ascension. And so Luke wants us to understand that he is now coming down again, not with a written law carved on tablets of stone, but with the dynamic energy and presence and power of the law designed to be written on human hearts. That's God's intention all along, for God to write on our hearts, to transform our lives, for the presence of God to live inside of us. So Pentecost, then, is a word with very uh, peculiar meaning, which Luke is keen that we should grasp. But of course, the first day of Pentecost and the experience of God's Holy Spirit from that day to this can't be reduced to theological formulas and interesting Old Testament echoes. Then we can reduce a hurricane to a list of diagrams on a meteorologist's chart. It's important that someone somewhere is tracking the hurricane. Wouldn't you agree with that? I'm glad for that. And tell us what it is doing. But when it comes to Pentecost, it is far more important that we are out there in the wind, letting it sweep through our lives, our hearts, our imaginations, our speech, and transforming us in order that our hearts are set on fire with the love, the grace, and the mission of God. So those images of wind and fire are, of course, what Luke says it was like on the first day. Many Christians and many traditions have used similar images to describe what is sometimes like when the Holy Spirit comes and ignites fire in the lives of individuals and communities. We use some of those images today in our worship with red banners moving over the people representing the coming and the filling of the Holy Spirit and flags of celebration. And also, if you look around, many people are wearing red, and it's for a reason. It's for a purpose. It's reminding us of the presence and the power of the fire of the Holy Spirit. So the wind came from heaven, and that's important for us to understand. The whole point is that through the Holy Spirit, the power of God himself comes from heaven to earth and does its work there. The aim is not to give people a spirituality for will, when, when, um, which will make the things of earth irrelevant. The point is to transform earth with the power of heaven, and that's important. Starting with those parts of earth which consist of the bodies, minds, and hearts, and lives of, of the follower, followers of Jesus Christ And that is the community of faith. It's about us. God wants to come to us and wants to see heaven come to earth to come and live and change and transform our lives. Remember, we talk about this a lot. We don't have a faith to die by where we can go to the the forever hallelujah by and by. And by the way, that is true. We will. But, But it's not all about heaven on the other side. It's God wants it to be about heaven coming to earth and being here and now. And we're praying for more of heaven to come to earth. So notice that in Acts chapter 2 verse 1, Luke stresses the point that they were all together in one place. The Spirit comes not to divide, but to unite. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on earth is the presence of the sheer energy, presence, and power of heaven itself. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the direct result of the ascension of Jesus. Because He is the Lord of all, His energy, the power to be and do something quite new, renewing all things, is available through the Holy Spirit to all who call upon upon Him, all who follow Him, all who put their trust in Him. And we read um, in our second reading from 
1 Corinthians, that when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, He produces the gifts of the Holy Spirit and uses His body to further the kingdom of God, to encourage the people of God, and to use the gifts to share the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. Now, the, the fire and wind are wild. They're untamable forces. And the experience of the wind rushing through the house with a great roar and the fire coming to rest on each person must have been both terrifying and exhilarating. Of course, there are many times later in this book, as there are many times in the life of the church, when the Holy Spirit works softly and privately quietly transforming people's lives and situations without any big noise and fuss. People sometimes suppose this is the norm and that the noise, the force, and the fire are the expectation, just as some supposed within Pentecostalism in some circles that without the noise and fire and tongues, something is seriously lacking or deficient. We should be aware of drawing either conclusion. Luke clearly intends to describe something new here that launched a great movement. Sometimes there, there is a big splash. Sometimes there is noise. Sometimes there's the spectacular. But for many and most of us, it's the ongoing quiet work of the Holy Spirit transforming our lives. He intends to explain how it was that a small group of frightened, puzzled and largely uneducated men and women could so quickly become, as they undoubtedly did, a force to be reckoned with right across the entire world. The power of the good news of the gospel spread throughout the world from ordinary men and women who were filled with the Holy Spirit's presence and power. And if we feel rather ordinary this morning, then we are great candidates to be used by God in amazing ways. Now, I'd like to be making, I'd like to make reference to John chapter 20. So when I talk about our gospel reading this morning, we had two options. So we read one this morning. I'm going to be making reference to the other, and that's in John chapter 20. So this morning, it clearly indicates that Jesus' mission to Israel, reaching its climax in the death, in his death and resurrection, is to be carried out by the disciples by sharing and embodying the message in all the world. So this is why they need the Holy Spirit, Jesus' breath, God's breath, to enable them to do the job that they could otherwise never dream of doing. So this takes us back to the moment of creation itself. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God breathed into human nostrils his own breath, the breath of life, and humankind became alive with God's life. And now the restoring life of God is breathed out through Jesus, making new people of his disciples, and through them, offering this new life to the world. So the result is that peace, twice repeated in our gospel, which Jesus has promised in Luke chapter 14 and uh, chapter 16. And with that peace, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, they are enabled to perform this extraordinary task. They are to pronounce in God's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit the message of forgiveness to all who believe in Jesus Christ. So they are to warn the world that sin is serious, deadly disease, and that to remain in it will bring death. They are to rebuke, rebuke and warn, 
Not because they don't like people or because they're seeking power or prestige for themselves, but because this is God's message to a chaotic, confused, and rebellious people. Some of us will be called by God into holy orders to be ordained a deacon and maybe even a priest. Some are called to missionary work overseas, and even some of us might be called to state, uh, missionary work stateside. Some will be called and experiencing big splashes and be well-known um, for your impact in ministry. I mean, I was thinking this morning about Bill Hall, one of our own, one of our own church members who's been a pastor of many churches, who's worked in in denominational leadership, who still now goes and speaks all over the world to conferences, to denominational leaders, and he's an author of many books. He's well known. And then you got someone like me who I'm just nothing. You know, I'm just a little splash in the water of all saints, you know. And it takes all kind. And so God uses some people in big ways. He uses other people in smaller ways. But we're all used. And God wants us to all be used for the work of the kingdom of God. We have a tendency to hear more about people like these or to judge success in ministry based on first-time commitments or massive crowds. Some of us have come from the evangelical tradition. When we understand salvation experiences like Paul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, he was knocked to the ground, he was blinded, he was converted, and three days later he received his sight again. And some of us have even thought, or we have even been told, that this was the norm to conversion experiences. Nonetheless, This is not the experience for many. For most of us, it is a gradual turning and changing and transforming. Like a seed growing in the ground for weeks and months before there is even any sign of life. We know there's life going on, but it's happening in the ground. God is at work. So there there was uh, repentance and faith over an extended period of time. But we might not remember the exact date and time, which is often the focus in some of the evangelical circles. The metaphors for Jesus, the ones that he used for the life of ministry and the kingdom, are frequently images of the single, the small, the quiet, salt, leaven, seed. Our culture often focuses on the big, the multitudes, and the noisy, the splendid of the splendid, um, uh, spectacular, and the sensational. However, there is something for us to remember from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. As many of you might know, my ordaining bishop and good friend is Bishop Todd Hunter. I keep up with and respect him dearly through phone calls, face-to-face connections, and through social media. I ran across one of his posts on Facebook this past week, and I'd like to convey some of his thoughts as we come to the close of this sermon. And he wrote this. Partnership with Jesus is expressed in a rich variety of ways based on your stage in life. We are sent into our ordinary, everyday lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, Young moms, stop beating yourselves up that you can't stay quiet for three hours in a day. Just enjoy your sentness as a young mom. Those of you who are feeling old and like you can't do much, as much as you used to be able to do, learn to embrace the beauty of old age. 
learn to notice the sentness that you now have. If you're in college, stop saying to yourself, it'll be different when I graduate. Be present to the moment that you're in now. College is the place, the venue in which you express your essential sentness and discipleship to Jesus Christ. Your stage of life, gift mix, temperament, faith development, all of these things play into the how you experience sentness. Just relax about it. Be at peace with it. Make yourself present with your life in Jesus Christ. And where you need to change, he'll show you. I think Bishop Todd nailed it. Yes, without a shadow of a doubt, we are sent people. We're called to make disciples who make disciples. We're missional people, all of us. But remember, we are called to faithfulness. One life at a time, Christianity. Christianity is about otherness. And building relationships with non-Christians is often the process. It might be a smile here and a written card there and a coffee one day and a meal another. It might be a a freshly baked loaf of bread or a plate of cookies. It might be roasting marshmallows over a fire pit or a glass of wine on the front lawn or a beer in the pub or a latte in the coffee shop. We're called to a life of love. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do, as I say many, many times, is learning to listen well. These are things to celebrate. It is one life at a time, small beginnings, salt, leaven, seed, single, mustard seed, little yeast. It's faithfulness. That is what we celebrate at All Saints Cathedral. True missional activity in the church can't be easily expressed through denominational parochial reports. Now that came from John Colley, and I happen to agree with him 100%. I'm going to read that again. True missional activity in the church can't be easily expressed through denominational parochial reports. Beware of the call to produce, to work, and to accomplish by people who mean well, as if it is all up to us, and we are the ones who are going to make this happen. We can't do anything apart from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus said in John chapter 5, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself, and He can only do what He sees the Father doing. And if that was true of Jesus Christ, how much more is this true of us? It's vital that we remember that God is already at work in the world. Our job is not to initiate the work of God, but to join Him in that work that the Father is already doing. And we don't have to save the world. Please hear this. We don't have to save the world. That is God's job. We're called to radically know, love, and serve the people that Jesus gives us to love. Jesus knows that faith expressing itself as love in action will always play out in the concrete and very possibly hidden moments of everyday life. That's why we stress the ordinary, ongoing life of living and following Jesus Christ everywhere we go and in everything that we do. It's God's work. Please say that with me. It's God's work. God is already at work. He's out ahead of us. And He's inviting us to join Him. What if we knew that God was ahead of us teaching us how to live into the posture of care and love, concern, empathy, and compassion in the world? 
What if we saw a life of mission as partnership with God who is committed to redeeming and restoring lives and relationships all around us? This is not our work. It is God's and He is pointing us to the reality that our work is simply to partner with God in His work. You know, people mean well, even in our Anglican circles. They do care about the gospel. They care about discipleship. They care about mission. They want us to move from institutionalism and maintenance to mission. And I think that's a good thing. I think we would all agree with that. But sometimes the words and the focus seems more works-oriented and guilt-based, as if all that we have done thus far is not good enough. Faithfulness is the key. Love is the answer. Awareness and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is the clue. Making ourselves available and then being obedient is what it is all about. The approach to ministry that All Saints practices corporately and encourages in its members is focused heavily on embodiment. Or another way that we could express that is incarnational ministry. It's a lived life far more than any kind of programs or events that we can host. We emphasize and we look for long-term transformation rather than one-time expressions of commitment. So may the Holy Spirit visit and empower us again in order that we may live life, grow in relationship with the triune God, love people around us, our spouse, children, family, neighbors, co-workers, etc., and live faithfully and sensitively to the leading of the Holy Spirit that will invite us to join Him in what He's already doing, to renew the world, to make followers of Jesus, to embody in the normal and ordinary everyday lives that Jesus Christ is King. So now we pray a prayer that has been prayed for over 2,000 years. It's in our liturgies. It's in our songs. Come Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit. Come as the wind and blow. Come as the fire and burn. Convict, convert, and consecrate us. Set our hearts on fire with a love for your Son, Jesus. And then use us as you will for our good and for your great glory. In our daily, ordinary, normal lives. And we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'd like to invite the parents to go 